Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. Test-driven development is a well-known but still underused software crafting technique. G. Paul Hill has been practicing and teaching test-driven development for 20 years, so he's the perfect person to talk to about it. And on 17th of August 2021, I did. Hello, G. Paul. Uh, Hello, Claire. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Okay, so let's leap straight in and tell me about that name of yours. Where does G-Paw come from? <laughs> okay, so my name is G-Paw. My birth name was Michael. G-Paw is the initial G and the word paw, and it's short for grandfather. And if you were to look at a picture of me today, you'd see that I am, after all, of the grandfatherly age at this time. But the, the name actually is not meant to be a reference to my extreme seniority and wisdom, but is actually affectionate teasing. Because I became a grandfather when I was just 31 years old. My wife's a little older than me and her kids were nearly grown. And I was presented with my first grandson 30 years ago last week. And as you can imagine, my friends and family thought that that was the most hilarious thing they had ever heard. (laughs) So they started calling me, you know, I mean, everything. Grandfather, old man, the patriarch. On and on it went and eventually got shortened to Grandpa and then G-Paw. And so G-Paw is actually what many of my friends and family have been calling me for a very long time. And nowadays, you know, most of the people who know me in the business call me G-Paw. Mm-hmm. So that's the backstory on that weird name. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Uh, what would you say your job is? <laughs> what is my job? Yeah. Well, the best job I've ever had is being a grandfather. But the second best job I've ever had is the one I have now, which is I'm a geek. And for the last 20 years or so, I have sort of split my time between being a programmer of various sorts and a teacher, but then eventually what I now call software development coach. And what I do is I travel around and I I hang with various teams. And what I do is work on helping them become more like who or how they wish they were. So I call that coaching Mm -hmm. and that's what I am. I'm a coach. Fantastic. And what we're going to be talking about today is test-driven development, which people often shorten to TDD, which is one particular aspect of how you might be helping people to do software development. But before we get to talking about all that, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody, which is who in this industry are you inspired by? Wow. I mean, that would be a very long list because I pull inspiration from all sorts of places. But if I'm going to limit myself to two. Okay. My very old friend and mentor, Ron Jeffries, inspires me by his persistent, annoying questioning of whether things are working and what we should do if they're not working. Brilliant. And I find that incredibly inspiring. And someone who is less well-known, perhaps, to to our audience is uh, Niari Samashanga. And uh, Niari runs an organization called We Think Code in South Africa. And it is an organization that seeks to take basically the very poor, disadvantaged population of South Africa 
and train them up to be geeks. And uh, over the last few years, I, I have known Yari and I work with We Think Code sometimes as a you know curriculum consultant. And she consistently gives me hope that I can do better, that it's okay to mess up and it's okay to adjust and realize you're headed the wrong direction and change directions. And that it's more than just okay. It is, in fact, our personal responsibility to do that. Mm, fantastic. Okay, so um, we're going to be talking about test-driven development, and there may well be people in our audience who don't even know what it is or aren't entirely sure. So what is test-driven development? Test-driven development is an attitude, an approach. It's a style of software development. It's not an add-on that we paste on to the old school. It's not an aftermarket. It's actually reaches deep inside how you approach software development to begin with. The basic idea is this. I assemble large collections of objects or of functions in order to create a shipping application. And the first prima facie evidence that I'm creating the application correctly is if every one of those pieces does exactly what I want it to do. Mm. Test-driven development is an approach that says, well, rather than make those pieces and then test them, what if you tested them? Of course, the tests fail because the pieces aren't there or they don't work yet. And then step-by-step, step, add a test, change the code to make all the tests pass. Add a test, change the code to make all the tests pass. That's the sort of fundamental approach. A lot of people try to algorithmize that. They say red, green, refactor. That's good. That's fine. That's a very, very loose skeleton. Mm -hmm. What we actually do is we try to make pieces by confirming absolutely that every piece does exactly what we wanted it to do. Yeah. So the test always comes first. First the test and then the code to make the test pass. Yes, except when I screw up, which I do. Oh, okay. What, what happens when you screw up? Ah, uh, so... This is such a common event that we have a name for it, overcoding, mm -hmm. which is when you solve more problem than you have test for. Okay. And it's perfectly natural. It happens to everybody. I've been doing this for 20 years. It happens to me all the time. I look at that and I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't have a test for that. <laughs> and I wrote some code for it anyway. <laughs> so when I see that code, I immediately go back and backfill the test I should have written. Mm-hmm. And often what happens is, oh, my God, there's seven more tests I've forgotten to write, too. Mm. And you just take your lumps and go back and make it right. Yeah. So why use test-driven development? What's it for? Not to put too fine a point on it, but I'm in this for the money. And I mean, I do derive tremendous joy from writing software, but a lot of that joy derives from whether or not I am shipping more value faster. This is one of what I call five underplayed premises in test-driven development. And the first of these is the value premise. And it, it says, if our value depends on us changing our branching logic, then test-driven development will get us there faster. Mm. And since almost all changing code is, in fact, changing our branching logic, that's why I use TDD. There's a lot of stuff out there that suggests that you should TDD because you're a good person in one form or another, either because you're a patriot or a good citizen or an artist or a craftsperson or this or that or the other. I, I, 
I don't sign up for any of that. <laughs> I, I test drive because when I test drive, I get to ship more value faster and make my clients happier. So that's an interesting one because I know a lot of people think that TDD is slower, not faster. So why is it faster? And do you understand why some people think that it's slower? Can you kind of make the argument to convince them that actually it's the other way around? So in one sentence, right, the objection is if I write 100 lines of code today, in order to test drive, I'm going to need at least that many lines of code. So now I'm going to write 200 lines of code and you're asking me to write it in a day. Have you completely lost your mind? <laughs> we call this the lump of coding fallacy. Okay. And what it is, is it's not looking closely enough at what you do during the day when you are, quote, coding. Really, we do three things. We do the design and typing in of the code. We do studying of code that already exists. And we do what we call GAC testing. GAC meaning geek at keyboard. When we, we run the application and we try it and see if it works. We do those three things. And the thing is, they are intermingled during the day. We flip back and forth between them in a split second of notice. That's why it seems like what we're doing is coding. But <laughs> the coding part of that is actually about mm, between 10 and 15% of that time. That coding part's going to double under TDD. <gasps> oh, horror. <laughs> One thinks, oh my God, they're just wanting me to do more work. This isn't going to go faster. The other two activities, however, first of all, the studying is cut in about half. Test-driven development creates for us a kind of executable documentation for our code. So we spend dramatically less time having to study, but then we have all of this GAC activity, the manual testing, the bouncing of the server, the refreshing of the browser. We spend all of this time on these GAC activities, not to mention the debugging, and it's hugely expensive. And yet, for most programmers, probably half of their time is spent in that activity. And when I adopt TDD, I cut that down to a tenth of the amount that it was before I used TDD. So yeah, the lump of coding fallacy says, well, it's all one thing. No, nah, it's not all one thing. It's, it's a bunch of different things intermingled through the day. It is true that test-driven development increases one of those things. The benefit we get is that it dramatically reduces the amount of time we spend on the other parts of those things. Brilliant. Yeah. So I absolutely agree with you, but it is something that can be surprisingly difficult to persuade people. And particularly, I think if you move from code that hasn't been tested and hasn't been written in that way to code that is, and it can definitely feel as though you are slowing down because it feels like you're doing more work, particularly if you're having to backfill. So if you're dealing with code that hasn't yet been tested, you quite often end up having to retrofit, which you know can feel like a very time-consuming activity. Do you have any tips for helping people to feel the benefit of that quickly? Take many more, much smaller steps. I find pieces that I find particularly interesting. Typically, I have to learn how to get them to a place where I can test them. Because mm -hmm. often in modern software development, they're buried, you know, nine levels up the inheritance hierarchy, or they're hidden behind some massive interface and all privatized and everything else. Well, I just take them and put them someplace I can test them. And then I do the backfilling against those tests. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason I said that TDD isn't a bolt-on 
It isn't something I add to everything I've learned so far. It is a different beast. And the thing I try to remind people is, you know, I don't know when the last time you learned anything that was hard to learn, that was a challenge for you. Maybe you learned to cook. Maybe the last time you did it was when you learned to ride a bicycle. I don't know. But yeah, you, you got slower. <laughs> you got slower for a little bit. People are often surprised at how quickly TDD applied delicately to an existing code base can actually help them find problems. I tell these teams, you don't have to TDD, I don't care, whatever's right. But every time a bug gets out of the house, come to me and let's see if we could have written a test that would have caught that bug before it got outside the house. Mm. And over time, they tend to realize that they could have saved a lot of time and stress and brush fire if they, <laughs> if they had actually simply written that test to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. But TDD is a big body of learning. And one of my angry things about the trade is how we try to oversimplify and ruleize everything we do. Mm. TDD is tricky. It takes judgment. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of judgment calls you have to make. And you're not going to learn that in a three-day class or a three-week class or a three-month of experience. Yeah. I would say that to get to approximately my current level of TDD took me about five years. Basically, I ran into a brick wall. I said, to hell with this. This is killing me. I'm not shipping anything because I'm trying this thing. But then over time, I realized, you know, there would have been a way to do that. I just didn't think of it at the time. Yeah. And you get stronger and stronger and you get to a place where it's just not daunting for you. Yeah. I was thinking about how for some people, one of the reasons that TDD can feel difficult is if they haven't yet learned all of the many skills that go into being able to write a good test suite. So for instance, if your classes aren't well designed, then you will find yourself using a lot of mocking. Your tests end up having this giant setup. So for the benefit of the less technical users, if you have a lot of bits of code that depend on a lot of other bits of code, you don't want to be calling every single bit of code. So you create something like a mock or a fake that just creates a pretend version of the bits that you don't care about. But if you end up with a lot of these mocks and fakes, that makes the test harder to write, harder to read, harder to maintain. And that's one of many skills that, as you say, comes with time, the ability to write code that will be testable with tests that are quick and easy to write and read. Absolutely. We're absolutely in complete agreement about that. I think that another underplayed premise is what I call the steerability premise, which says that tests and testability are first-class participants in design. Mm. And what it means is just that if your design was not built to be testable cheaply and easily, mm -hmm. it won't be testable cheaply and easily. And cheap tests pay off. They pay off well. Mm. Very expensive tests don't pay off very well. Yeah. The answer, change the design so that I can get cheap tests, is one that's very hard for people to understand if you're not a coder. If you think about the parts of your car and imagine that I had to test all the parts of my car. There's an electronic ignition system in my car that has 40 inputs. How am I ever going to test it unless I hook it up to a live car? is a real question. Mm -hmm. The answer is the same answer that they use in the trade, which they actually have a fixture in which they set that module with a bunch of knobs and switches and various things that they can use to control those 40 inputs to set up specific situations and probe that the electronic ignition actually fires at the right rate at the right time. Yeah. 
I have heard people argue that that is one of the reasons that they don't like TDD, that there are lots of parts of modern code design practice that are there really to facilitate testing rather than to facilitate efficient code. And therefore, they say that they find that TDD impacts the design of your code negatively because then it can make your code Harder to understand and more unwieldy because it's been built purely for the sake of tests. Well, what would you say to that? Yeah, really? Because I don't believe that. I simply don't believe it. I've never seen it. I've never seen a testable design that was less easy to understand than a non-testable design. So first of all, you know, kind of right out the bat and right out of the box, I'm just going to say, yeah, I don't believe that. But let's say it were true. Am I getting anything else from those tests that's worthwhile? If I am, then I've got a cost-benefit analysis I have to do. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not, then to hell with it. Well, in point of fact, I can demonstrate that cost-benefit analysis to you pretty easily. The first time I keep you from shipping something that brings down the entire mid-Atlantic power grid. Um, <laughs> the first time I prevent you from having to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning because your beeper went off. You're going to see that actually that investment was a pretty sound investment. Yeah. One of the really simple things that I noticed that you've already touched on is that when I'm testing every tiny bit of my code and when I'm writing those tests in advance, then I can very quickly think, okay, this is how I'm going to know whether this works or not. And this is how I'm going to check if it is working. And I can check every tiny little bit of logic and I don't have to wait until everything's been put together. When I'm doing test-driven development, I can find out straight away, does that logic do what I think it was going to do? Yes, it does. Tick. Right. In milliseconds, I can discover that, the answer to that question. Absolutely. And although it is commonplace to believe that most software problems are some sort of incredibly obscure, multi-threaded rocket science. Most of them are dumb little mistakes. Places where you thought you told the computer to do X, <laughs> but you actually, what the computer heard was to do Y. And very often, there are one-liner fails. Mm -hmm. Everything else in the code base works except that one line. It's too bad we didn't have a test around that one line. Experts suggest, and this is old data, but as of like 2005 or so, they were suggesting that a third of all shipping errors are off by one error. You meant to count to two, but you actually counted to three or you counted to one. Mm -hmm. TDD never lets an off by one error get away from you. Yeah, that's really nice. Okay, so... You know, let's say I'm thinking I would like to learn how to do TDD. Let's say maybe you don't even have a job as a software engineer yet or, or barely. How can you start to learn how to do test-driven development? So the sort of stock answer will get you through chapter zero, which is, you know, go find some of these Kata videos and do the Kata and actually walk through some cases that were prepared precisely to get you to learn some of these things. But that doesn't get you very far. And if you took what you learned from that kata and tried to take it into your code base, you would create a, a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. What's next? Well, there are people out there. There are people like Liz Keough. There are people like Emily Bache. There are Joe Rainsberger, James Grinning, Jim Shore, all of these people have long, extended conversations in their material about 
serious real world programming using test driven development. And so, you know, there's a there's a constellation of stars out there. And that's your next step. Go find somebody who's going to be a North Star for you to help you orient and just get sucked into it. You'd be amazed at what hardcore professionals will throw out casually as if everybody already knew that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, my God, that never occurred to me. So that's sort of the next level. And then if you want to get serious with an organization and changing your team and stuff like that, to be honest with you, you should do something that very few organizations do, which is go find a mentor and pay them to come mentor you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry that the state of our trade is such that 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 is a forbidden thing, but it that is the next step. Mm, yeah. And I think that gets close to what I was thinking recently when somebody asked me this same question and I was suggesting that they they look at videos and do, you know, pretty much the things that you've described. And then I realized that there was one missing piece from all of that advice, which is do it with somebody else. Do some pairing. So yes, watching a video is great, but inevitably you'll have questions and there will be things that if you'd have been there, you might have done slightly different, which wouldn't necessarily even have been wrong. If you have somebody there with you who's experienced and that can also allow for the fact that it's not black and white and there aren't always right answers and wrong answers. When you've got somebody live there with you that you can have conversations with as you go while you do it, that makes an enormous difference. It does. It's it's a game changer. And then there's even a leveling sort of beyond that, which is if that person is expressly there for that purpose and skilled knowing the 10 different ways you can say a thing, the 10 different ways you can draw the picture of it, as well as the 10 different ways you could actually make it work mm-hmm. and is actually more invested in you learning than in you hitting your deadline. Mm. Those people are gold. Yeah. Without those people, I certainly would not have come to this place in the industry. It's it's like I say, it's too bad that it's still regarded as an unusual thing mm-hmm. to actually go out of your way and find a mentor to help you learn this extremely difficult thing. Yeah. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, that's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. Quick reminder that before the break, we were talking about how one of the best ways to learn test-driven development is by pairing with someone else. So what problems do you encounter when trying to encourage or persuade people to adopt test-driven development? Well, nowadays, the biggest problem I have is actually simply that they, I'm going to get in trouble, aren't I? (laughs) 
I don't know. What are you going to say? They don't know how to program. <laughs> so it's hardly surprising that they don't know how to TDD. Mm -hmm. In the 40 years I've been in the trade since 1980, two incredible revolutions have happened that have increased the demand beyond anything anybody has ever conceived of as occurring in a 40-year period. Revolution number one is the price of physical computing from 1980 to 2000 dropped so low. You got a computer on your watch. You got a dozen computers inside your computer. <laughs> you, got, you got computers in your light switch, computers on your TV, computers everywhere. The cost of physical computing has dropped so low during that stretch. And it gets even worse because from 2000 to 2020, the cost of distributing software has also gone. It has skydived. And the two things have created a marketplace that is in such incredibly desperate need for people to program that it brings them in. It gives them a three-day orientation, typically making them watch some stupid videos that have nothing to do with the day job. Mm -hmm. And then it shows them where the pointy end of the compiler is and sends them over the wall to fight the Bosch. You know, that doesn't work. Yeah. That's the first thing. And the second thing, man... That same demand has created a marketplace of crap. Yeah. People <laughs> people who can, you know, print four-color brochures and give you rules and have great PowerPoint and sweet talk, people who actually don't understand software at all. And it's the demand that has pulled in these people. And I, I'm not saying they're all hucksters. A lot of them are just incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know... In general, the pedagogical aspect of the software trade makes P.T. Barnum look like a man of upright integrity. Mm, okay, interesting. Told you I was going to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think one of the things is that there's just always this rush, 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 rush to meet deadlines. This idea that the, the quicker you do things, the more effective you'll be, the more money you'll make. And it's very hard for people to acknowledge that actually you will go faster if you go slower. You'll go better if you go slower. You will have fewer bugs and that makes it worth it. It's hard for the people holding the purse strings to acknowledge that. And it's hard for the people whose job it is to do the work, to find the confidence to say, you know what, we will do this better if we move more slowly. The truth is that, you know, of course, Geeks love to hate on managers, mm -hmm. but look at the next two or three layers of manager above the floor. And what you're going to find is that they have been actually cared for and mentored and trained almost exactly as much as you have, which is to say, not at all. Yeah. And it, it's hardly surprising that, that they don't know how to help you. And they take the sort of simple speed math for granted. I mean, most of that reasoning is based on a model that what you do is lay bricks. But in fact, what, what we do when we write software is more like juggling bricks. And people who say that, of course, have to have a lot of weight and authority in order to actually convince anyone to accept that reality. Yeah. I mean, I happen to be one of those people, so I'm lucky in that respect. People say it's very hard when you're at the bottom of the organization. Let me tell you, it's very hard at the third level, too. It's hard up and down the game. The whole trade is suffused with a bunch of broken models and half-understood bad physical world metaphors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's inch by inch, step by step. That's all you can do. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, talking a little bit more about the actual practices of, you know, the nuts and bolts of how you do good TDD. And I know that one of the things that you like to do is push code frequently. Can you talk about why that is? What's the benefit of that? Yes, absolutely. I'm a trunk-based developer. I do not advocate using branches at all. I'm so glad to hear that because <laughs> I agree 100%, but I quite often have to have that argument. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm big on that. So, And I push to head, I pull from head, I test from head, I do everything from head. And one of the challenges that we see is that we try to take on steps that are too large. And when I say too large, if we're talking about programming, I'm talking about like three days. Three days is too large. Mm -hmm. Typical cycle time for a push. I'm working in Kotlin. That obviously is part of that. It's very expressive and compact as a programming language. And I'm good at it. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. So that's part of it too. But my cycle time varies between 10 minutes and half an hour. And once I get past half an hour, my stomach hurts. Yeah. And I get panicky. And if I make it all the way to 45 minutes, I just revert. So that's the kind of cycle times that I'm talking about. Why do I do that? Because it keeps me from breaking everything else in the universe, mm -hmm. which is incredibly important. Our model of programming has this idea that there's a finished jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces in perfect shape and that you first get a problem description and then you create that puzzle that, with all the jigsaw pieces. But that's not actually true. What, what is actually true is that most work in software development is not adding new pieces, but changing the pieces you've already got. Yeah. And because you're afraid to make that change, what you do is you create a branch, you take a bunch of big steps out on that branch, and then you try to bring that branch back in to the main body of code. Mm -hmm. The reason that doesn't work is because although all of you out there are extremely lovely and attractive individuals, you're not that bright. <laughs> this, <laughs> this problem is extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. And you cannot possibly hold it all in your head. When I use small steps like this, I create for myself interruptibility for when the dog starts barking or the spouse comes out or my colleague has a question or my boss calls on meeting. I create steerability because if I'm all green and you change the subject entirely to go in a completely different direction, I don't care. Yeah. I'm all green. We can go anywhere you want. Yeah. I give myself repeated frequent doses of dopamine. People love to talk about how Oh, it's human. And this trade is yeah, dopamine. I'm talking about drugs. I'm talking about abusing substances in the workplace. <laughs> Every time I get to the green bar, I'm like a rat pressing the food pellet lever. Oh, I got a pellet. I got a pellet. It's enormously motivating and energizing. And then the fourth thing that it gives you is grokability. The smaller my step, the less I have to think. And People, again, they want to talk about humans, but they don't want to actually look at the reality of human bodies and human biology. Bandwidth, the number of intellectual balls you can juggle, is, for most of us, between four and six at a time. And our performance doesn't degrade steadily when we go to seven, eight, nine. It dives to the ground. Yeah. We get extremely, extremely slow and make it very much harder for ourselves. When we take smaller steps, we can understand what it is that we're changing. Mm -hmm. And that is of spectacular benefit for us in terms of productivity. The catch for those four huge benefits is this. You, you, you've got a plan for that. Yeah. That is to say, 
the collision between limiting the size of the stride and getting a whole new screen up on your app, you can't do it. It can't be done. You're going to have to take it in little tiny steps. And I can just keep pounding steps all day long, get my dopamine all day long. And I will actually improve your application faster than if I took larger steps that were more in line with the direct immediate increase of user value. Mm. This is really hard to get across to people, but the problem is that that old reasoning that is so common is based on a silly model of the world that exists in exactly one place, which is two-dimensional plane geometry. So if we talk about a vertical slice of functionality that might ultimately be the reason that you're making your tiny step because you're moving towards as small as possible, but something that's going to be visible to the user and that's going to make a difference to the user experience. Are you still happy to package up your tiny steps into something a bit larger that might be the thing that you're delivering, if you see what I mean? So I certainly carry around an idea of what is on the horizon right, of what that faraway step actually would have been trying to achieve. But I can't get there in a straight line, and I won't try to get there in a straight line. Mm -hmm. I get there by taking little tiny steps, each of which gives me a dose, and that doesn't send the user's experience backwards. And and now we're moving sort of out of code and actually more into the story level when I say this. When you actually get this across to people, it actually turns out to be pretty easy to solve the sorts of problems that they encounter. But They weren't looking for those solutions before. Mm. And now that they look for them, they're like, oh, yeah, it's everywhere. So we talked about cycle time being very short. I would advise a team to have a story cycle time of one team day and a half. Mm -hmm. No story should take us longer than a day and a half to implement. So again, by our modern standards, that's an extremely tight, limited stride for a step. The trick is not to try to add all the value at once, because when you add all the value at once, you're also going to be adding all the risk at once. Yeah. Much better to distribute the risk and the value in slow accretion of the ultimate desired functionality. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. So there's one question that I really want to ask you, which uh, I've noticed from following you on Twitter and from looking at your website, and I don't know how long this has been true, that you preface everything you say with Black Lives Matter, which I love. But uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? I started doing that about three and a half years ago. Every one of my major Twitter muses has uh, a statement at, at the beginning, right after the sort of header introduction tweet, and another one at the end about that. One of the things that we see is how easy it is to focus all of our attention inside the monitor. And believe me, God, I love geekery so much. But for me, there are more important things than code going on around us. My friend Ron will often introduce such a a session with a a similar tweet to mine, except he he casts around sort of about the things that are upsetting him this week. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. I have no problem with that. But for me, I live in the U.S. The most horrific thing I see in the U.S. today is how we treat our co-equal citizens. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are other extremely bad things that we do, things I would also like to change. But I decided that the thing that I was going to try to draw people's attention to and get them to pay attention to, I mean, 
Look, Claire, you're you're looking at me, even though our listeners are listening. You're looking at me. You're looking at an old white guy, an old white American male computer geek born in 1960. <laughs> I live better than most kings and queens you've ever read about. So I have a place of position and privilege from which I can maybe point out that there are more important things in the world than me. Yeah. And for me, the issue that has struck most fully in my consciousness is the extraordinary rationalizations we use to justify what is frankly oppression right here in my country, right here in my neighborhood. Yeah. And that's why I do that. Now, I should say that's not enough. I should also say that I do other things too that are in support of that exact thing, more than just a couple of tweets. And then I should thirdly say, and also that's not enough either. I'm aware of all those things. Anytime I can get somebody to say, hey, you know what? This guy is supposedly a programming expert and he actually cares about the world. I call that a win. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So I'm going to move on to the questions that I ask everybody. So the first one, and this is just a little game, really. I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing about you that's untrue. And if listeners want to know which one was the true one, then they have to subscribe to our uh, newsletter, which the details will be published in the show notes. Okay. I have no formal education in programming computers, and I do not have a college degree at all. Mm. That would be one. Okay. And what would be another one is that I take a four-mile hike every day. Mm. So you're a fit old white man, healthy, well-exercised. One of the interesting things is that the autodidacts are often the best educated people, the people who teach themselves, partly because they often have this feeling that everybody else is ahead of them and that they need to catch up. I listened to a lovely, lovely podcast with Alice Goldfuss. Have you come across Alice Goldfuss? Yes, absolutely. She was on a podcast that interviews people about their careers and how they got to where they got to, specifically developers. And she didn't have a degree and, and, and was self-taught. And she describes a scenario where in one job, she was trying to decode stack traces and she was looking at right down at the machine code level. And she, she was trying to work out what this error was telling her. And, and she went off and taught herself how to read machine code level stack traces yeah. in order to understand what the error was and to debug something. And the reason she did that was because she assumed without asking anybody that everybody else must already know how to do this because that's probably what they got taught at university, right? And she felt behind. She felt on the back foot. She wanted to not look stupid. So off she went and taught herself this thing and then discovered that nobody else could do that. Right, right. <laughs> so she was teaching everyone else how to do it. But that feeling that everybody else is ahead of you can make you actually push yourself harder than anybody else ever had. Yep, yep. So to end on a high, what is the best thing that happened to you in the last month or so? It can be work-related or non-work-related, doesn't matter. So I've had an awful month. And just this morning, someone tweeted me, someone DM'd me to tell me that they had started a geek friendship thing. I, I wrote about this the other day about, you know, one way to get really strong at programming is just to get a bunch of friends together who are all geeks and who are all actual friends once a week and hang out and talk. Mm -hmm. 
show code, don't show code, debug, don't debug, show something you're really proud of, show something you're really disgusted by, whatever. Just, you know, associate. And uh, he was telling me that he had done so and that he was having an absolutely fantastic time with his group Mm. and that he found it really motivating and exciting. And he said it was only because I told everybody to do that that he decided to try it. And, you know, I wrote him back. I was like, first of all, that's terrific. And, oh, <laughs> that just makes my day. Aww. That just really makes me, you know, I'm so happy to hear that. Anytime I actually manage to touch somebody and get them to try a thing and they like it, that makes the whole game, you know, worth the candle. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so where can people find you? And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? I don't have anything to promote right now. You can find me really two places, gpawhill.org, G-E-E-P-A-W-H-I-L-L.org is my blog. And it has tons and tons, I think right now about 300 blogs about topics as varied as test-driven development and refactoring and how do I slice stories and what I call the subject of harvesting the value of change, which has really everything to do with code, but also everything to do with process and everything to do with changing the world and all of that stuff. And most of those blogs were written live action, improvised on Twitter, mm. where I am, again, Gpaw Hill, and I tweet mm, virtually every day. I talk about lots and lots of things that don't have anything to do with our trade in any simple, direct way. I talk about music. I talk about art. I talk about politics. It is not safe for work. <laughs> and I also do what are, in effect, the blog and podcasts that you'll find at gpawhill.org. And uh, you can always reach out to me at either location. I love hearing from people. And I guess that's it. I guess I've run out of steam then. (laughs) So that's how you get me. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. Test-driven development is about writing tests and then writing the code that's needed to make those tests pass. It allows you to ship more value faster. It's important to understand that coding isn't just about writing code. It's also about designing code, reading code and testing code. And TDD increases the amount of code written, but dramatically reduces the amount of time reading code and the amount of time manually testing code. Applied to an existing code base, it helps you to find problems. And in general, it allows you to catch bugs before they get out into the world. It forces you to build code that can be tested cheaply and easily. But TDD isn't simple. It took Gpaw about five years to reach his current level of proficiency. If you want to learn TDD, you can learn by watching videos, by reading about real-world problems solved by TDD, by practicing with catters, but most of all by pairing with an experienced practitioner. TDD is more effective when you push code frequently, ideally every 10 to 30 minutes. Trunk-based development allows you to work in small chunks and merge frequently. Larger chunks and less frequent merges increase risk. Finally, black lives matter. Don't focus all of your attention inside the monitor. Okay, that's not all. Stick around for extra content.
every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to story time. Storytelling is useful for teaching, for unlocking empathy, and for creating a sense of shared connection and trust in your teams. I love telling stories to both children and adults. I'm actually a lapsed member of the UK Society for Storytelling. So the plan is that I'm going to be using stories to illustrate various points about effective software development. This story is about a sneaky, two-faced coward. It might be a conspiracy. It's probably a miscarriage of justice. The victim was an unfortunate boy called Robin Gray. I was 12 years old and Robin Gray was a boy at my school. I had a massive crush on him and he lived on the same street as my friend Kirsty. So I was really excited to get invited to her house for a sleepover. But the most exciting thing of all was that Robin Gray posted a love letter through Kirsty's door for me. I was so happy. I started following him around. I started waiting for him outside his piano lessons. And then disaster struck. He told my friend Soraya to tell me to please leave him alone. I was devastated and furious. How could he lead me on like that, only to dash me cruelly on the rocks? I started carving Robin Gray is a sneaky two-faced coward into every desk I sat at. It was a big school. I didn't think he'd ever see it. And then I got hauled out of my maths lesson by an irate head of year. Why was I bullying poor Robin Gray? It was impossible for me to explain. So where was the miscarriage of justice? Well, at least a decade later, I told this story to some friends. They asked me about the letter, which wasn't signed. It was just a piece of paper headed for Claire with a big heart in the middle. And Kirsty insisted it was from Robin. Now, H.J. Burlingame, who was a magician a hundred years ago, once said, We easily believe what we ardently desire to be true. My friends worked it out instantly. It wasn't from Robin. It was a joke played on me by Kirsty. <sighs> so, what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, don't believe everything you're told. Also, never assume that people are impervious to insult, no matter how much you believe they've harmed you. And insults shared in public will generally find their way back to the recipients, even if they're not present when you share them. And if you're out there, Robin Gray, I'm so sorry. Hi, I'm Jack, Maytech's events coordinator. Now, working in the public sector means that at Maytech, we really care about making a difference. So, for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing small pieces of advice to make the world a better place. Today's advice comes from Chris Wilson, one of our client principals, who has some advice on how to be kinder to the planet. And that means, well, using your bike more. So, Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, we used to be a two-car household. Having three children and a dog meant we were always dropping off at nursery or school, after school clubs. Since lockdown, one of our cars had just sat on the drive gathering dust and, uh, and some of that horrible green algae that uh, attacks your car if it's parked for too long without a good clean. So we made the decision now to just have one car. On occasion though, we needed to be in two different locations at the same time. This is where my bicycles come in handy. 
So I bought a trailer for the children to sit on and be able to be towed by my bike. So it comes in handy to you sometimes for nursery school drop-offs. However, my four-year-old since outgrown the trailer, so the dog goes in there with my youngest if he needs to. And I bought this thing called a trail gator, which is like a metal pole that connects a small bike to my bike. So I can now tow my four-year-old along also on his bike. So uh, not only have we reduced our carbon footprint, it's also doubled up as being good for my health and well-being to be able to get out on the bike. But uh, towing somebody else means you have to make that little bit more effort up hills. How do the little ones find it being on the back of the bike? Uh, they love it, actually. Sometimes my youngest falls asleep in the trailer, which makes for interesting viewing for anybody uh, walking past us with his head slumped to the trailer. <laughs> He's fine, I swear. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, lovely stuff. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for taking the time. No problem. Thank you. And that's the end of another episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us. Speaking of which, thank you to CJ Wilson, who particularly recommends the podcast for people working in the public sector. I've got a few talks coming up. You can see the details on my events page on Medium, which is linked to from my Twitter profile. And you can find that at Claire Sudbury, which is probably not spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description, and to the rest of our internal MedTech team, Kyle Chapman, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb, and Lara Plaga. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We publish new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.